episode 463 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. My name's Derek M. Cook, the writer, host, producer of Monster Kid Radio. Welcome to the show and welcome to the song Toro Star from the band Albino and the Dwells. Could also be Albino and the Dwells. Either way, it's from their self-titled album, Albino and the Dwells. And you can find them at albinoandthedwells.bandcamp.com and check them out when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. They're a surf band based out of San Diego, California, and they gave us permission to play their music here on the episode. You'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of the episode. But there's a lot to get through, a lot to get to, before we get to that point. It is March, and while the NCAA did cancel its... Okay, I'm not even going to pretend that I understand sports ball, basketball, college. There's a bracket, isn't there? Well, last year, to coincide with that, we did a monster madness thing, and we're doing it again this year. Steve Turek is shepherding this through Monster Kid Radio once again. And last year, when he was meeting with Ron Adams at a convention, it wasn't Monster Badger, it was a different con, he and Ron sat down and broke down the ballot. What's the ballot going to be? Well, you're just going to have to listen to that segment with Steve and Ron to find out. Also in this episode, though, you know I can't let an episode go without talking about a movie, and we've got a new person we are welcoming to Monster Kid Radio. We're talking with author Nicole Cushing. She is an award-winning author, and she was incredibly patient with me as I kind of screwed up the schedule, and we finally met up and recorded and talked about the 1932 film The Old Dark House. And of course, you know, the conversation kind of goes all over the place, but... That's kind of what you're here for, right? To hear a couple of monster kids talking about some of their favorite monster movies. And The Old Dark House, man, if you have not seen it, if you've only seen the Hammer version, or you've not seen it at all, you are missing out. That is coming up. It will be preceded, however, by Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, because The Old Dark House did get some significant coverage in that iconic magazine. We have one tiny bit of feedback to go through as well. And before we get to the rest of the show, I just want to take a second to get serious here. I don't talk politics here on the show, and I'm not going to start doing that now. And I try not to talk politics online as well. But I think what everybody is dealing with right now with the coronavirus, with COVID-19, it goes beyond politics. It goes beyond party lines. It goes beyond everything. Please take it seriously. You guys and gals who know me know that my wife has several autoimmune diseases, and this hits really close to home for me. My sister-in-law, her sister, who did appear on the show once, I believe, or maybe that was on Mail Order Zombie. Anyway, her sister also has some autoimmune issues, and it's kind of scary. This whole thing right now is pretty terrifying. So please, even if you are young and healthy and feel like this isn't going to affect you, understand that you could carry it to somebody who can be affected by it. And in some cases, it could even be deadly. So please take care of yourself. Follow the CDC guidelines and wash your hands, man. Seriously, social distancing and all of that. And speaking of social distancing, if we can kind of get back into the Monster Kid swing of things, Social Distance Saturday will be happening this Saturday. What is that? Well, it is another meetup on Twitch. We're going to be doing another run of movies on Twitch on Monster Kid Radio's Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Also, if you follow me personally on Facebook or Twitter, I'll be talking about it there as well. I'm going to be starting movies at 1 p.m. Pacific this Saturday. And for those of you who are listening to this show 
in the far future. That would be March 21st, so it's probably already happened if you're listening to this. But anyway, I'm really looking forward to this. We did kind of an impromptu meetup through Twitch last weekend with a bunch of stop motion films, and that was a lot of fun. This time around, we're kind of prepping for it a little bit more. I've got some unique movies and TV shows I'm going to be showing all bloody day. I don't know how long it's going to go, but it's going to go pretty late. Even if you can't be there at 1 o'clock or if you need to check out to go watch Svengoolie because it's on Saturday and then come back in, I'd love to have you. And the nice thing about Twitch is that there's a chat window, so there will be some conversations happening with people, with me and other viewers of the film. I've got some treats in mind, some surprises, and you know, I don't want to tell you about it just yet because they haven't all come together, but it is looking to be a really good time, and I hope to see you then. You know what? Let's move on. Let's get to the rest of the episode right about now. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly, but never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See The House on Haunted Hill, if you dare. Queen of Blood. A tantalizing, mystifying enigma. fresh blood. She's a monster. We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander? received some feedback through Facebook from Alistair Hughes. He is the man behind the incredible book Info Gothic. I'll make sure there is a link in the show notes to pick up that book on Amazon because if you don't already have it and you love Hammer films, man, you're missing out. Anyway, he says, Hi Derek, just a quick note to say thank you as always for some wonderful episodes recently. Like many others, I love the roundtable discussion and your wonderful Monster Squad chat. You mentioned in this week's episode that you were curious to hear recommendations of Star Trek podcasts. Like you, I'm an enormous original series and Trek movies fan and have thoroughly enjoyed 70s Trek, Star Trek, 
in the 1970s. Filling the fascinating gap between the end of Series 3 and the arrival of the motion picture, it's a fascinating part of the story, which isn't often heard, and I cannot recommend it enough. 70s Trek sadly came to its natural end last year, which makes it even more special. And then he gave me a few links to that particular podcast as well. Even if the show has come to an end, the content's still out there. It looks like they ran for over 140 episodes. And when I look at some of the episode titles, it looks like they did branch out a little bit into some non-Star Trek content like an episode titled The Day the Earth Stood Still? I wonder what that's about. Anyway, check out 70s Trek, Star Trek in the 1970s. Alistair Hughes approves. I haven't had a chance to listen to it myself, but I will be very soon. If you want to get a hold of me and leave some feedback for the show, you can do so like Alistair did by finding me on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Just look up Monster Kid Radio. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. Or you can send me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Nighttide, with its boundless power, ties these two together in a love tainted by strange, sinister terror. Siren song of the sea. Pulsating like a bongo beat, calling, driving the sea people. You saw how she looked at me, how she spoke to me. She's one of them. one of the sea people and Charlie I'm so afraid you're a stranger here and I guess you don't know what everybody here knows. Ellen dear in the past two years Morris had two boyfriends and they're both dead now world of monster collectibles. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you're only gonna need the edge. This is Steve Turk, the roving Monster Kid radio reporter, and I'm here at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention with a legend of the Monster Bash. Oh, brother. Yes, Ron Adams, who's come down to Hunt Valley, Maryland to sell his wares at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. And of course, anytime you're around Ron, you talk about monster movies. And we have this tournament coming up where we're going to be doing 32 monster movies, movies that the general public doesn't feel are that good, but we know 
are actually good movies. And of course, even out of these 32 movies, there's going to be sometimes there's going to be a movie that Ron and I will talk about that we might not really like, but we know somebody liked it because it made the list. And I got these movies from people at this past year's Monster Bash in June of 2019. And I asked everybody, give me some movies with those parameters there prior to 1968. And I got like 50 of them and I randomly seeded the 32 slots and Ron's going to go through with me and we're going to break down because Ron's probably one of the few people I know that's seen every one of these movies and could talk about them off the cuff. Ron Adams, how you doing today? All right. Great, Steve. Thanks for letting me do this. It's fun. I like talking old monster movies. We're going to be going through 32 different movies. And it's just like we did before. We're going to have movie against a movie. And basically, we're asking you to vote for your favorite, not which one you think is your best. I don't think we have to worry about most of these movies being considered on a best of list. Just something that you like to watch, right? Exactly. Yeah. And whatever movies advance on, we'll eventually get to the final four and the final one. This ought to be an interesting list. So we're going to start off with the East. We have eight movies there. And the seating is not really set up by anything special. We just randomize the seating. So don't think like number one is actually a number one or number eight's a number eight. It's just a way to have them so we can keep track for the tournament. But Ron, in the first matchup in the East, we have the number one Creeping Terror versus ooh. Manos, the Hands of Fate. Double ooh. And Ron, what I'm asking you to do is who do you want to win and who do you think the Monster Kid Radio listeners are going to vote okay. for. Okay, all right. You know, this really, as far as who I think will win, is a toss-up. As far as for me being a fun bad movie, Creeping Terror is actually fun. Bad, but fun. Mano's Hand of Fate, I have a hard time with that. Um, and it kind of goes back to my old thing of movies can be bad and I'll still like them and low, low, low budget and I'll still like them. But boring is the killer for me. That's why I would go with Creeping Terror because Mano's is just boring. But I think it's a toss up because Mano's has gotten a lot of popularity because of Mystery Science Theater. Uh, I mean, Creeping Terror, they did that too, but Mano's is really known, really branded with Mystery Science Theater. And that might help it, but I say Creeping Terror. So right off the bat, we got a nice matchup for everybody to go crazy with. And, it, and, and there are some crazy matchups coming up. Um, personally, I'm going to pick the Creeping Terror because I told this to Ron earlier. When I was four, maybe five years old, still living up near Erie, Pennsylvania, my mom and I were watching this movie on the TV, and I never knew the title of it. And, it, and all of a sudden, these people were getting attacked and eaten by the monster. And my, I was like, oh, my God, Mom, this is scary. And my mom goes, son, it's just a carpet being pulled over them. And I said, I can't watch anymore. And I never watched it, and, and, I've, and I'm still scarred from that childhood memory. And I've, I've yet to see the whole thing. But if a movie can scare me that bad when I was like four-ish years old, I'm going to give it the pass for my vote and move it on. All right. Now, here's an interesting matchup. We have Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter versus Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Monster Kids Go West. Yes. All right. This one, my personal pick would be Billy the Kid versus Dracula. You got Carradine, and he's actually, with all the crazy wide-eyed mug shots he does, it's great. I really like it. You know, of course, the general public would think it's just trash, but I really like it. Uh, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. I like it, too, but um, I think Billy the Kid's got the win on this. 
And I agree with you too. John John Carradine. It, it makes me want to watch the movie all the time. I actually own both of them as any monster kid radio fan I'm sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have an interesting matchup of two movies I have not seen yet. And oh. I will see. So I'm, I'm going to defer to Ron on this one. We have the horror of party beach and it's going against Ega. <laughs> it's okay. Well, Horror of Party Beach is, you know, you got a bunch of uh, gill men, and for some reason, the suits that have, like, it looks like they're eating hot dogs. I don't know why, but uh, interestingly, it it seems goofy, and it is goofy, but there are scenes in it that are actually kind of graphically gruesome for the time. I mean, you actually see, like, blood running down girls' legs when they're attacked, but it's a, it is, it's fun. There's lots of music. I mean, it's got great music in it. And then Ega. Now, Ega is also fun, and you've got Richard Keel, and that's always a plus. Richard Keel, the, I don't forget what he was in real life, 7-2 or something, 7-4, and he plays the, the caveman throwback that for some reason he has existed alone out on the desert since prehistoric times. We don't know why, but the there he is. And Arch Hall Jr., he's uh, kind of the, the male lead in this, uh, playing the goofy teenager in the white uh, sports jacket playing guitar. But great stuff. Uh, and But I would go with Horror of Party Beach. I think most people would, too. Uh, they're both fun, but Horror of Party Beach has got more going for it, I think. And like I said, I haven't seen either one of these films, so I'm just going to defer to Ron on that one. I will have seen them by the time this comes out, and I might change my opinion. Now I <laughs> It's a battle of women, the leech woman versus the wasp woman. All righty. We go to leeches and wasp, uh, the female variety. Leech woman, universal, is a lot of fun. And you got a very vindictive woman who has to stay young by jabbing people with this, uh, this ring. And the wasp woman, on the other hand, is not a major studio. It was a Roger Corman product. And this one, believe it or not, what I would go with is the lesser of the studios. I would actually go for the Wasp Woman on this, actually because I think with very little budget and just very creative uh, shots, photography-wise, Roger Corman made it scary. I, when I saw it when I was really young on, on Channel 11 out of New York. It was scary. It's a scary a scary little low-budget movie. And, uh, of course, as Steve's mentioned, the general public probably don't even consider these movies movies, but uh, we do, of course, and I think the Wasp Woman wins over the leech woman in this one and i'm gonna agree with you i've seen both of these and i and i I really like the wasp woman too now before we move in the other brackets we're going to continue on the east until we get down to one movie left so we have the creeping terror versus billy the kid versus dracula okay well i go for Billy the Kid versus Dracula. My reasoning is the Creeping Terror is fun. It's got the carpet monster, and it's not as boring as Mano's Hand of Fate, but it still does have some boring segments. <laughs> Billy the Kid versus Dracula, I don't think is boring. At least personally, I don't. I, I go for Billy. Billy winning over the carpet monster. I love Westerns. I love Billy the Kid. And like I said, I've never seen the Creeping Terror all the way through. So I have to now go with a movie I enjoy and I've seen all the way through. And I'm going to go with Billy the Kid also. But of course, who knows what the listeners are going to do? Now we have the the horror of Party Beach is up against the Wasp Woman. Okay, I am going to go with horror of Party Beach on this one. Hot dogs and all. Just because you've got a lot of monsters, 
they're creepy looking gill men and you've got that that great music that crazy band and i think it just wins hands down over wasp woman in this particular case so horror party beach for me i'm gonna go with wasp woman because again i've never seen the horror party beach so i can't, I can't pick a movie i've never seen but like i said i might change my mind now who's going to come out of the east ron is it going to be billy the kid versus dracula or the horror of party beach Wow. This actually is tough for me because they're both movies I, I like a lot. I guess, you know, I'm going out west with John Carradine with Billy the Kid versus Dracula on this. And and again, since I've never seen horror, I'm, I'm, if this matchup comes up, I'm going to go with Billy the Kid. What can you say? Out of the East, Ron's prediction to make one in the Final Four be Billy the Kid versus Dracula. But now we're going to head to the West to see who's going to match up against Billy the Kid. And here we got a great matchup to start with. We have the Giant Claw versus reptilicus giant claw (laughs) has very serious acting and good acting and one of the goofiest looking monsters uh, on the planet but that kind of makes it fun it's got this goofy goony bird monster and if you notice in the movie everyone compares it to a battleship a flying battleship i don't know why but everyone the screenwriter had everyone say man that thing's as big as a battleship uh and then over at reptilicus oh wow <laughs> it, what a film my first exposure to reptilicus was not watching the movie itself but watching the beverly hillbillies and why because on the beverly hillbillies jethro there's a scene where he is watching something on TV, and what do you know? He's watching Reptilicus, and that kind of fits with Jethro. And I have to go with Jethro on this. I like Reptilicus better than the giant claw. Well, Ron, I'm going to have to respectively disagree with you <laughs> because I'm a giant claw fan. And part of my appreciation of the giant claw was last year, or actually 2018, for those that are listening, at your, your Monster Bash Film Festival. With the giant mm-hmm. monsters, you had yeah. the giant claw there on the big screen. And with my <laughs> yeah. son seeing it for the very first time. And you know what, Steve? On that big screen, it was as big as a battleship. It was bigger than a battleship, Ron. <laughs> 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 but I, I just want to give respect to the giant claw being, I, I believe after watching a movie, that the giant claw was the first one to take a selfie with the weather balloon pictures. <laughs> and and when I thought about that, it, it's just to my mind, I cannot get that out. So hopefully giant claw moves on, but. Ron's picking Reptilicus, so we have Reptilicus moving on on our little bracket here. Now, we have the Beast of Yucca, is it Yucca, Yucca, Yucca Flats. Yucca Flats against the Horrors of Spider Island. Oh, man, Steve, man. This- <laughs> okay, well. We don't make it easy for you, Ron. It, well, yeah, this, uh, a Beast of Yucca Flats is terrible. I mean, it's it's right, right barely above Mano's Hand of Fate, in my opinion. Of course, everyone's got their own opinion. Uh, Horrors of Spider Island is really bad, and it's got a lot of, like, dancing girls and just weirdness, just total weirdness. But I kind of like it better. Well, I do like it better than Beast of Yucca Flat. So I'm going with Spider Island on this little trip to the island. Everything's better. I mean, I'm a Gilligan's Island fan. I'm an Island of Dr. Moreau fan. <laughs> I'm a Horrors of Spider Island fan. It must be something about the tropics just yeah, brings out yeah. the you know, the movie lover in me. Robot versus the Aztec Mummy is up against Earth versus the Spider. <laughs> okay. Well, this one's kind of easy for me, but uh, very interesting picks. Uh, Robot versus the Aztec Mummy is one of the most fun science fiction horrors out of mexico earth versus the spider though 
It's Bird Eye Gordon. Sure, he's got some transparent-looking giant monster, giant spider, but uh, it's got the it the spider coming to life because of rock and roll in a gymnasium. Man, I love that. So, and and that creepy giant web in the cave. So I I go easily with Earth versus the spider on this one. Anybody would be a fool to bet against Mister Big. <laughs> <laughs> but again, the beauty, like we said, all these it's our opinions. Everyone and, likes what they like. Everybody likes yeah. what they like. And, yeah. and we, I like making it tough for people to make decisions. <laughs> <laughs> it Conquered the World is up against the brain that wouldn't die. Ouch. Okay. Uh, it Conquered the World, Roger Corman, goofy looking a monster, but endearing at the same time. Uh, I remember Beverly Garland was at Monster Bash and she talked about uh, – when she first saw it and she told Roger, she said, I can't believe this is your scary monster. And she kicked it. <laughs> and Roger was upset that she kicked it because he thought she might have damaged it. Uh, the Paul Blaisdell creation. It, it is bizarre looking, but that kind of makes it so, so cool. The brain that wouldn't die is a favorite just because it's just so out there. I mean, it is wacky, wacky, wacky. And actually pretty darn gory for 1959. I mean, it is it is pretty interesting and fun to watch. But I'm going to go with Roger Corman's It Conquered the World on this one. I'm just going to be a devil's advocate with you. And I'm, I'm going to go with The Brain That Wouldn't Die because we're talking about movies like this. when Low-budget favorites crazy out there but it all works when it when they pull it off and it works and you do have a cone-headed monster uh, coming out of the the closet at the end with uh tearing the guy's arm off it, it and and biting his ear off or whatever just crazy stuff it is fun i it was tough for me to make that decision but i like it conquered but brain you're right brain has a lot going for it and i'm just curious to see how it is all like i said when the beauty of this i get to watch these things when the votes come in so does derek and it's interesting to see how people vote. It makes it fun. Now, to finish out the West, we have Reptilicus is going up against Horrors of Spider Island. Okay, well, for me, that's pretty easy. I'm going with Reptilicus on that. I mean, it spits radioactive green slime. I like it. I'm not going to argue with you because everybody knows I'm a giant monster movie fan. So when it comes up, when a giant monster movie is going against another film, that film has to be pretty special to take out the, mon- the giant monster. <laughs> All right. Earth versus the spider is up against It Conquered the World. Ooh, okay. Well, um, both lots of fun, eh? and I love Bird Eye Gordon, but I think I'm going to have to go with It Conquered the World on this one. Iconic monster. This this is a tough matchup you put there, and oh, man. I, I'm actually going to agree with you. I'm going to go with It Conquered the World just because you got to love the way it looks. Yeah, it is just one cool-looking uh, Cool looking Paul Blaisdell creation. But do you like It Conquered the World better than Reptilicus? Because that's the matchup you made to see who gets to the final four. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. I, I, um, okay. Reptilicus. I, I still, I'm going with It Conquered. I'm going with It Conquered the World. Yeah. It's made the cover of Scary Monsters magazine many times. It's a great, great monster and fun, fun movie. And Beverly Garland. You just sold me there with the last part. You, you, <laughs> I, I was trying. I was trying to think. Like I said, it takes a special movie to take out a giant monster movie, and I think it conquered the world. Is that special movie for me? And we have our final four. Two of the final four. We have Billy the Kid versus Dracula, and it conquered the world. But before we decide who's going to win in that two, let's get the other two in the final four here, and we're going to move to the south bracket, and we have 
Plan 9 from Outer Space, and it's going against Santa Claus. This is really a difficult one for me because Plan 9 is, and I'm sure, I, I really think Plan 9 is going to win because, uh, as far as uh, other Monster Kid fans out there, but uh, because it's more popular. But uh, Santa Claus, I saw as a kid, is a matinee, and this is the Mexican movie where it's kind of like Santa Claus meets the devil. And it's, it scarred me for life as my mother left me in the theater to watch it alone. I was about six years old for this matinee, and uh, she had no idea. She thought she was leaving me for like a Disney kind of movie and this thing is like about as far from that as you can get and I loved it and so personally I'm going for Santa Claus I think most people would go for plan nine but uh, I personally just love Santa Claus the Mexican movie this is a tough matchup it is very tough and I'm gonna go Santa Claus too because I saw Santa Claus here at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention back to back days. So I have Santa Claus on the mind. I'm going with Santa Claus. Okay. The crawling eye is up against Attack of the Eye Creatures. Oh man. You don't, you don't think we don't think um, the randomization hit with a little theme on that one. This actually is very easy. Attack of the Eye Creatures of the Eye Creatures is just uh really low budget uh remake of it conquered the world it just is dull in my personal uh thoughts but the crawling eye rocks i love the crawling eye forrest tucker the mist the just everything about it crawling eye is a rocking movie so i go for crawling eye and i agree with you forrest tucker i was always enjoyed him and f troop and other movies that he's done with the abominable um, snowman you know, and those mm -hmm. kind of things. So I'm going to go with the crawling eye with Forrest Tucker. All right. Now you have Dinosaurus versus Gamera, the giant monster. Okay. Now I'm I'm guessing, think that it was released in America as Gamera the Invincible. You're talking the first Gamera, right? The 1965 one. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I saw that in the theater uh, and it's black and white. And I did even as a kid think that's kind of odd that it's black and white, but it was low budget. Uh, but Dinosaurus is great uh it's uh made by the same guy that made the blob and irving yeworth and i really love dinosaurus so i am going to go with dinosaurus even though i really like gamera too i like gamera but these there's these first few gamera movies they were it, it, it didn't come out of the gates running let's put it that way and is dinosaurs, if I remember, is that the one with the... Um, the caveman and the little kid and the brontosaurus and the tyrannosaurus that are released from the uh, the ice and the steam shovel. That's and what the, I was asking And about the tyrannosaurus, it's like a battle of the, of the, the giants. Did you show that, I think, was it last year's? Um, the yeah, Chris, Chris Yeaworth was uh, the son of the director was there to introduce it and talk about it. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm going with dinosaurus because... It's got a, it's got a lot of stuff in it. I mean, it's just awesome with oh. dinosaurs. I mean, the more dinosaurs, the better. Yeah, and monster kids can. Re if you were a kid seeing that, you could relate with this kid that liked the dinosaurs. Pretty neat. Bride of the Monster versus Queen of Outer Space. Yikes. Okay. Well, Queen of Outer Space is it's in color. It's uh, it's 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 real crazy fifty sci fi. And Bride of the Monster is kind of tacky and black and white, but I like it. It's got uh, Bela Lugosi, Ed Wood made it, and I think it really is Ed Wood's best movie, if if you can say such a thing. I think it is. It's really it's really fun. So Bride of the Monster for me. And I'm agreeing with you for the same reasons. I feel it was, it was, it was Bela's last good role. 
where he was able to perform and bring everything there and that kind of stuff. And it's, I just enjoy it. It's just, a fun, it's always fun. It always brings a smile to my face to watch Bride of the Monster. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now to finish out the South, we have Santa Claus is going against the crawling eye. Wow. This is really tough for me because I, as I mentioned, I have such sentimental uh, value in San, the Santa Claus, Mexican Santa Claus movie. But the crawling eye, if I have to really pick, it's very close. But I, I'm going to go with the crawling eye. But that's really close. And I'm going to agree with you, too, with the crawling eye. I mean, you and I are pretty much in agreement on most of these things. So it's, I guess that's why I buy so many movies from you. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like-minded. Dinosaurs against Bride of the Monster. Well, uh, I'm gonna. I am gonna have to default to the uh, away from Bela on this one and go with the the dinosaurs because uh, it just it's it's fun. It's totally fun from start to finish. You got giant monsters. You got a caveman. It just and the kid riding the brontosaurus. It, it's great stuff for monster kids. If anybody hasn't seen this movie, see it. It is a fun movie to watch. But now you have dinosaurs against the crawling eye. <laughs> it's just, that's bizarre to think about, actually. Um, <laughs> In a real matchup, it would be pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, I, if I'm if i sitting down and, and think, okay, who's going to win? Which which movie am I going to watch? I, I actually think, oh, boy, this this is actually the most difficult yet, Steve. I'm, I, I think I'm going to go with <sighs> dinosaurs, but it is really, really close for me. It's a coin flip. This is a coin flip. And I, and when I go to vote, when Derek puts this thing up, it's literally, I mean, I could tell you right now, oh, I'd vote for dinosaurs. Or I'd vote for the crawling eye. And I'm probably going to change my mind when it comes there. I'm sure Ron, it sounds like he's so close that he yeah. might. Oh, he yeah, votes, absolutely. He might actually vote different than what he just told everybody. That's true. So the North, the final bracket, Robot Monster is up against Devil Bat. <laughs> well... <laughs> Robot Monster, everybody knows, and you know, the, in the classic line, you know, I must recalculate. And uh, who who doesn't love seeing a, a gorilla suit with a fishbowl on its head? And Devil Bat is one of uh, Lugosi's just greatest low-budget films. I mean, Dr. Carruthers and, and the bats and him getting revenge on the, his employers. I am actually going with Devil Bat on this. As, as popular as Robot Monster is, uh, I personally am going with Devil Bat. The Robot Monster, that was filmed in 3D, right? Yes, it was, but uh, and I think very few people have ever seen it in 3D. I would love that. would be one of the films I would love to see It would 3D. be really cool. I'd love to as well. <sighs> this is a tough match. <laughs> this is very, for me, oh, man. I'm going to go just be Devil's Advocate and go with Robot Monster just because Whoever came up with that costume, they were crazy. And then somehow it works. And did it really happen or was it all a dream? Yes, was it? Who <laughs> yes. knows? Teenagers from Space is up against Frankenstein Conquers the World. Ah, wow. You know, there are a lot of Toho fans out there and me being one of them. And I, I saw Frankenstein Conquers the World very young on when I saw it and I loved it. And uh, Teenagers from Outer Space is just fun, fun, fun. And I'm probably going way against the grain here, but I'm going with Teenagers from Outer Space solely for the 10-second scene where someone uh, ray guns a dog and it falls over as a skeleton. <laughs> it's just, it was just so weird. I just couldn't believe what I was watching. I'm like, what a bizarre effect. <laughs> this alien is ray gunning this 
this happy little dog, and then plunk, it falls over, and it's a total skeleton. I thought just thought that was like the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. And the whole movie is actually pretty fun and actually kind of intelligent at times. At times. And, and this is going to come no shock to anybody that knows me that's listening to Derek's podcast, Frankenstein Conquers the World. I'm a Toho fan, and it's crazy. It's out there. It's fun. And it led to an awesome sequel. <laughs> that's true. Oh, I love the sequel. Yeah, War of the Gargantuans. Yes. This is an interesting matchup. Navy versus the Night Monsters is up against Monster of Piedros Blancos. Okay. Uh, Navy versus the Night Monsters. I had heard that title for years when I was a kid, and I didn't get to see it till I was a little older. And uh, boy, did I regret that. <laughs> no, regret seeing it. Not not, not wondering what. It, it's rough. It's rough. It's plants, and it's it's no, nothing like Day of the Triffids, which I really enjoy as far as uh, oh. as uh, plants that are a threat. Monster of Piedras Blancas is one nasty monster. This is the Gill Man gone bad, real bad. And uh, I, I love that movie, so I go with Monster of Piedras Blancas. And I'm agreeing with I'm going with the monster, too, because it's basically it's like the Gill Man's evil cousin. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. That's it. <laughs> and you, and you got to love it. The Killer Shrews is up against Godzilla Raids again. That's a tough one, Steve. That is really tough because uh, the Killer Shrews is a load of fun. It's almost like uh, yeah, these nasty little creatures. And, and in real life, the poor dogs, they strapped all this fur onto. But then when you see them gnawing through the, the walls, it's like they're like puppets. And it's just, I just thought it was great. I mean, just talk about entertaining. Not good, not, not, a, not a high budget movie, but entertaining from start to finish now godzilla raids again man this is tough because i love that too um it's the second godzilla movie if i'm not mistaken and um you've got like some knockdown drag out fights in it it's just great um very tough and i know uh, steve is probably i'm predicting going toho again but i'm going to go with the killer shrews just because i find it so darn entertaining I agree with where you're coming from, and I agree that you're right. I would pick Godzilla Raids again over to Killer Shrews, but I still love that scene when they're all in the cans <laughs> trying to get to the boat. Yep. I yeah. mean, inching along <laughs> with in big oil drums over them. Crazy. That's when creativity comes in. Like, oh, how are we going to get from place to point A to point B? You just got to love it. All right. To finish out the North, we have Devil Bat up against Teenagers from Outer Space. Well, I am going with uh, Small Town Dr. Carruthers here. We're going with Devil Bat. I find it really fun. It's probably the most fun, low-budget uh, Lugosi movie, or at least one of them. It's just really, really fun. And Lugosi always saying to his intended victim, goodbye. It's just, it's just, I love it. I love it. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. And it just match up. I'm going with devil bat, you know, cause I, I love that movie. And then I can over to you. I, I got a fellow Lugosi set from you and I never saw devil bat until a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. What a treat. huh? So <laughs> it, it was a treat. Cause I was just like, you know, you put it in and it, the best thing about a treat is when you have no expectations in the movie, you have no idea, right, right. except a little blurb that tells you about it and you stick it in and you're just like, 
that was good. <laughs> and and, um, and I'm surprised more people don't know about it. My buddy Mike Adams mentioned, a lot of people might not know this, in the devil bath, the reporter that's in that, his boss, who's always yelling at him and firing him, is actually the real voice. It wasn't Mel Blanc. It was this guy, I forget the actor's name, it was Elmer Fudd's voice in all the Warner Brothers cartoons. And once you know that and you watch Devil Bat again, you'll never not see Elmer Fudd behind the desk yelling at those guys. You know, when I get I, back from... Yeah, I forget the actor's name off the top of my head. But well, This the, weekend, I'm going to stick that thing back in now that you just said that. I'm, Elmer Fudd's yelling at the reporter and this photographer, yeah. That's what I say. Most people go to Wikipedia. I go to Ronopedia ah. <laughs> for monster movies. All right. Monster of Pedras Blancas is up against the Killer Shrews. Okay, for me, it's that monster of Piedras Blancas, the lighthouse, the monster, the, oh, he's ripping the heads off of people. Oh my gosh, it's, he's a nasty monster and a cool looking monster too. I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, comparing these two, that one is more of a favorite to me. Now you've backed yourself into a corner. You got the devil bat and the monster of Piedras Blancas. This the, is tough. Who's going to get to the final four? Well, man. I think I'm going to go with Monster of Piedras Blancas. I think I'd, I'd, if I had to see who's going to be the winner to watch tonight, I think it would be the Monster of Piedras Blancas. Look, Derek, a creature from a different lagoon actually made it to the Final Four and might actually win a tournament. <laughs> 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 but let's see now. So we got our Final Four. So the East is going to be the uh, representative. is going to be playing the West. So we got Billy the Kid versus Dracula up against It Conquered the World. Who gets to the final matchup? Wow. Uh, these, these, this actually is getting tougher and tougher and tougher. I am going to go with It Conquered the World on this. As much as I like Billy the Kid versus Dracula. I know when people say this, and we've had a lot of feedback from listeners, like when you do these things, it, may, it drives us nuts because we got to pick between one favorite and another favorite. And I think when it comes down to, as Ron said earlier, it's like, which one do you feel like watching now? Yeah. And right now, I feel like watching It. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's because... There's a movie called It Chapter 2 out in the theaters, and it's calling to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now, who's going to go against It Conquered the World? Is it going to be The Crawling Eye? I'm sorry, not Crawling Eye. Dinosaurus. Or is it going to be Monster or Pedros Blancas? Dinosaurus or the Monster? I'm going with Monster or Pedros Blancas. Shoot him up uh, another uh, another ranking here. All right, this, this is your final matchup. To decide who wins it all, according to Ron, would it be It Conquered the World or The Monster of Pedras Blancas? Well, I'm going with it, going all the way with uh, the gruesome Gill Man, Monster of Pedras Blancas. I really can't argue. I mean, I'm interested to see what you, the listeners, the Monster Kid Radio, come up with because we got we know what Ron would want to go in for this list. We'd go with Monster of Pedras Blancas. And I'm, I'm sure Ron's going to be curious to see how much similar or difference he is compared to. But a lot of the these crowd. are so close; it could have gone either way with me. A, a lot of lot of the pathway here, it could have gone either way. And and Ron, when he votes down the, he might not actually vote monster all the way down the end. He might he might vote different, like he said, on some of those different paths. And listeners looking to see a lot of these films, you know, there are a lot of places you can go to and look them up and that kind of stuff. But don't forget. Give Ron a chance to plug. I get a lot of movies from the creepy classics and, um, you know, feel free to, you know, look and see Ron's DVD, Blu-ray thing and see if those movies there. I'm sure Ron's got a lot of these. I'm not, I don't know if he has all of them available. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, yeah. 
except maybe Frankenstein Conquers the World, I think might be out of print at this point, but uh, most everything. But, you know, I'm I'm thinking back now, Crawling Eye, I should have given it more love. <laughs> <laughs> and stay tuned, because in two days, the ballot for you to vote for the first round will be available on our website at monsterkidradio.net. Today was like any other, the hum of daily activity until... Reptilicus. A beast born 50 million years out of time, spreading terror in its path, destruction in its wake, towering over the cities of the world. Reptilicus. Invincible, indestructible. Reptilicus. In color from American International, even after you see it, you won't believe it. Reptilicus. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural ghoulish and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. What astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind? Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Very well. I will recalculate. Your death will be indescribable. Fool humans, there is no escape. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's film, The Old Dark House, was given full film book treatment in Famous Monsters 66 from June of 1970. It was a 12-page article with 17 photos. It was also featured on the cover with a beautiful Basil Gogol's painting of Gloria Stewart looking frightened as a creepy hand touches her shoulder. The article begins with this. Long Lost, the first Karloff film of horror following Frankenstein, has at last been rescued. 
spookily directed by James Whale in 1932. Its cast included, beside Karloff as the dumb brute Morgan, Melvin Douglas as Pinderale, Charles Lawton as Sir William Porterhouse, Lillian Bond as Gladys, Ernest Thessinger as Horace Femme, Eva Moore as Rebecca Femme, Raymond Massey as Philip Waverton, Gloria Stewart as Margaret Waverton, John Dudgeon as Sir Roderick Femme, and Brimber Wills as the Mad Saul. Film drama by J.B. Priestley. Here's the exciting story. It continues with a very detailed synopsis of the film. Monster kids in them days weren't worried about spoilers. At that time, for all we knew, it was the only way to know about and enjoy the film. It had been lost and restored, but that didn't mean it was available at Walmart. I was well into my adulthood when I first saw the film. To give you an idea of the detail of the synopsis, let's take a look at the introduction of Boris Karloff's character during the film. There was the noise of heavy bolts being withdrawn, and the door opened some six inches. A face peered at them. Margaret shrank back in fear. It was a dull animal face that looked out. Slowly the door opened wider till his full figure came into view. He was a big lump of a man, a shapeless creature with full black beard and matted hair over a low forehead. He reminded Penderel of a gorilla more than anything else. We've come to ask for shelter, Penderel explained. We've lost our way and the road seems to be impassable. No sound came from the man. His massive body did not move. Not a sign of comprehension showed in his eyes. Only the ugly scar across the bridge of his nose and another over his right eye seemed to deepen in color. Don't you understand? Penderel was getting impatient. He felt himself getting drenched to the skin. We've come to ask for shelter. What about it? Slowly the man opened his mouth and pointed with a thick finger down his throat. Then he made strange, gruesome, guttural noises. He can't speak, Margaret whispered. He's mute. Slowly the ugly creature came to life. He took a few lumbering steps back into the room and with an unfriendly gesture beckoned them to enter. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Shock Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas the world's most shocking monster stalks its unsuspecting prey, feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms. The screen's most nightmarish beast. A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. of 
Spider Island. Eight beautiful girls and one lone man struggling for survival. With death, sudden, violent, and horrible lurking in the shadows. Horrors of Spider Island. Out of the night came a fate worse than death. A man's mind twisted, his brain poisoned, with an uncontrollable lust to kill. Horrors of Spider Island. A tale of terror that will leave you limp. So hideous and shocking, you won't believe your eyes. His hunger for victims was never satisfied. to be frightened out of your wits by the horrors of Spider Island. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I'd like to welcome to the show award-winning author, a winner of the Bram Stoker Award, nominated for a few other amazing awards as well, and she's got one of the coolest last names ever, even though she's not related to the great Peter, Nicole Cushing. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. So great to be here, Derek. It's awesome to have you on here, especially since, well kind of screwed up the whole recording thing. Listeners, I uh, mistook Sundays on my calendar, so I'm puttering around my home doing my thing last Sunday, and Nicole's like, let's record. I'm like, oh, no, I screwed up. So, Nicole, first of all, thank you so much for being so flexible. No worries. Uh, I mean, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of the uh, Corona apocalypse. Yeah. So I think that uh, recording a, a podcast is an easy thing that can uh, be lost in one's mind. So no worries at all. And you do such a wonderful job, Derek, that, you know, I'm just grateful to be a part of the show. I'm thrilled to have you on here. We've actually been kind of chasing each other a little bit on Facebook about this for a while now. And to finally line this up and make it happen, uh, and especially somebody who's work I respect and know and somebody who's got some mutual friends you know we were talking about Dr. Gangreen earlier you know it's just great to have somebody else to add to the mix especially when it comes to talking about such a cool movie oh my goodness yes I rewatched it a couple of times and I just love how delightfully weird 
this film is. It's just a celebration of oddness. It really is. And I would expect nothing less from James Whale, especially in the 30s. Just the guy was a master of his craft, and he knew how to work just enough quirk into what he was doing to give it that edge. Yes, and sometimes quite a bit of quirk. Yeah, (laughs) I love any kind of tale of hereditary madness, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about this film. The family that is creepy and kooky, to borrow a phrase from the Addams Family, just all the differences in the infighting in the family and the fighting between the the travelers who just happened upon this house and the family and the infighting within the travelers. There's a lot of cool layers of conflict in this, and I don't want to rush ahead and get into that too much necessarily, but there's a lot of wonderful things to love about this film. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different layers here. I mean, it it is called The Old Dark House, and for my money, it's probably the most, I'm just going to say iconic. It is the the old dark house movie this is a trope that has been used before and many times since but this is it this is the pinnacle for me i think so too but like you said we don't want to get too far ahead because you've been listening to the show you know there's something we got to do first oh yeah before we dive into discussing the movie we've got to play a round of the classic five the classic five for listeners who don't know the classic five is a game that we play with everybody that comes on the show and uh, basically what it is is a card game i've got a deck of cards here each one of these cards said this or that which movie do you prefer style question there are no wrong answers it's just a way to get a couple of monster kids talking or keep them talking nicole are you ready to play the classic five I'm as ready as I'll ever be. All right, here we go. Okay. I did not do this on purpose. Uh, It's something about the classic five. The cards know they pick the best questions to start with, or at least throw in the mix. Nicole, what Peter Cushing role could have or should have been played by Christopher Lee? Ooh, I'm thinking, gosh, I would love to see Christopher Lee as a vampire hunter. Oh, that'd be so cool. He's so athletic. And I'm thinking about that performance of Peter Cushing in Brides of Dracula as the vampire hunter, you know, where he's like, you know, he he takes the cross and he, he like basically brands himself with the cross to take away the uh, the vampire bite and the whole thing with the windmill and flames and everything. Can you imagine like Christopher Lee at that height and everything? I mean, Peter Cushing did a wonderful job doing a swashbuckling at times sort of vampire hunter and balancing that with an intellectual vampire hunter who was a scientist, but also somebody who could swing into action. But I like the idea of like Christopher Lee as a vampire hunter. And in that film, he could have done it because he was not playing the vampire. Yeah. And so I can imagine like him hammering home the stake in someone's heart. No pun intended. Uh, uh. Hammering home the, oh yeah, hammering. I, I just got the pun now. Hammering home the, the, uh, the, the stake. Coffee. We I need, need more, more coffee. coffee. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that and just imagine him, you know, he, he has the brains to pull off the more intellectual part of the role. So I would love to see him destroying vampires much in the way apparently he, you know, during his World War II. He's uh, alleged to have been like a Nazi hunter, like someone who was uh, kind of doing covert operations, thinking that as like the parallel where he would uh, hunt vampires in the same way that he hunted Nazis in uh, World War II. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. When you mentioned Christopher Lee as like the, the hero, that sort of thing, I'm always drawn back to movies like The Devil Rides Out or Nothing But the Night, where Christopher Lee is the hero. And if it gets so bad that you need Christopher freaking Lee to save you, you know it's bad. 
So, <laughs> you know, so to see him as a vampire hunter would be a lot of fun, I think. So, yeah, that would have been awesome to see. Would have been awesome to see. All right, card number two. In your mind, what is the most underrated classic vampire film? Oh, wow. I really like the 70s movie Vampire Circus. It doesn't rely on major stars. It just relies on a lot of weirdness, a lot of energy. I just love the oddity about it more than anything. I love the the aspect of it that's centered around a plague because in a way it's kind of like the vampires are kind of almost like a, a plague as well, a, a second plague following up on the first plague that the town is seeing. Uh, and I love uh, just I love anything that has to do with carnivals and circuses and intermingling that with horror because you have this whole idea of these outsiders who you really don't know that you're spending all this time with when the circus comes to town or when the carnival comes to town. I just love that film. I think it's really well written and well performed. And uh, I, I had to go further back. Gosh, like something black and white with vampires. Well, I mean, Dracula's Daughter is Mm -hmm. um, one that I think is underappreciated. One of the things I love about it is it, like, follows up the logical consequences of, like, what happened if Van Helsing actually did stake a vampire or, or, you know, kill the vampire is that, you know, there would be, like, police asking questions. And it (laughs) picks up on that. It's very logical as a sequel to Dracula. And I think the... Uh, the lead actress in that role just really does a good job of being kind of haunting. And she's not a kind of just an eye candy kind of vampirist. You know, she has some gravity to her, which I think is important. Some real, real depth. Yes. Yeah, that that one is a particular favorite of mine. I, I keep going back to it. Like once a year, I'll watch it. There's so much more going on than just, hey, it's a sequel. You know, there's just so many layers to that film and like you said it it deals with the actual fallout and that's one of the things that i i miss about a lot of a lot of horror movies classic and modern is that the characters go through this terrible terrible thing and then the movie ends i want to see the fallout i want to see how the cops write this up in their report you know (laughs) yeah yeah in most horror movies, everyone would, you know, be traumatized afterwards and, you know, you'd be, you know, checking your windows and you'd be uh, watching around the corner. I mean, the, the experience would resonate with you for a while. And so I think that some horror movies are able to kind of get a handle on that some, but the, the horror movie is there to encapsulate kind of this artificial experience where it doesn't really get into that. Yeah. But I, I like you, I do appreciate it when they are able to do it. All right. Card number three. Uh, we're going to go through some big bugs here. Which movie do you prefer? Tarantula or the deadly mantis? Ah, uh, the deadly mantis. Mostly. Really? Okay. My husband and I watched that. I think it was on Sven maybe about two or three years ago. And I just remember us really enjoying it where tarantula isn't something I don't think I've ever even seen possibly. So by default, by the fact that tarantula has not even uh, entered my consciousness yet as a film that I've watched, the, the deadly mantis wins, you know, kind of running unopposed as it is in that particular case. But plus, I mean, A spider is, you know, that's a common everyday kind of creepy animal, but a mantis, whoever thought of it like making a mantis as this sort of uh, enemy, this foe, 
So, you know, just because it's a little bit off the beaten path, I'll go with the Mantis. Fair enough. All right, that was what, number three? So on number four, assuming you like Creature from the Black Lagoon, other than the Gill Man, what's another really good aquatic movie monster? Oh, classic movie monster that is in water. Well, is it Dr. Eric Vornoff's octopus? In- <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, certainly gets points for uh, fondness in the heart. That goes into like maybe the not-so-classic uh, <laughs> part of the program. There's that. Are there all that many actual aquatic monsters in horror films other than, well, I guess there, there's, you know, like, isn't Reptilicus, you know, that would be like a, a aquatic bit, yeah. Yeah. creature. So you'd have to say something like that. You know, if you were going to go into literary realms, we'd go into, you know, some of the elder gods and whatnot from H.P. Lovecraft. Let the record show Nicole brought up Lovecraft before I did. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I have uh, uh, some uh, Lovecraftian pictures up here in my office and everything. I, I'm not the the biggest, hugest, most fanatical Lovecraft fan, but I definitely appreciate him. I'm trying to think of like other ones, and probably there's some listeners saying, "Say this, say this," you know, um, because I, I I'm just kind of blanking on aquatic creatures but yeah the, the gill man what i love about the gill man and the creature from the black lagoon is just i root for him i mean it's like mm-hmm. I, I want him to get he's just minding his own business really you know, yeah. all he wants to do is be left alone that's another thing i like about the invisible man the invisible man just wants to be left alone that's that's like his whole thing he just wants to go to the hotel and hang out and chill and be left alone and because uno o'connor can't like mind her own business then everything goes out of whack so, you know, I can relate to that. I, a lot of times I just want to be left alone. Both the Gill Man and the Invisible Man, in my, my opinion, are the, uh, the more uh, introverted creatures in the, in the universal uh, monster fandom. I mean, Frankenstein's kind of introverted, too, if you think about it. Uh, Dracula is a little bit more social. The mummies are maybe a little bit more social because they're like driven by romance. I guess the Gill Man is driven by romance to some degree, too. But yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it is they just want to be alone, hang out, be undisturbed, do their little creaturely things, and people have to barge in and bug them. Practice social distancing, folks. Leave the yeah, invisible definitely. man alone. The there man. You go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you won me over with Bride of the Monsters, uh, Octopus. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final card Alfred Hitchcock or William Castle? Hitchcock. Largely because, um, I, don't get me wrong, I, I mean, all of these are kind of like difficult dilemmas, right? I don't, mm-hmm. It's not that I toss aside Castle out of hand. I, I love the house on Haunted Hill and all of that sort of thing. But there's something about the best of Hitchcock that tickles my neurons. There's a, a degree of suspense there that is enthralling in a way that, you know, a William Castle film just can't quite capture. I mean, C- Castle is a good thing to watch if you're just looking for goofy, kind of fun, relaxing kind of entertainment where uh, Hitchcock is something that I think really does achieve a status of art much of the time. Not all of the time, but um, I love his film Rope. That is just completely suspenseful, completely absorbing. One of the lesser known ones, but I think really one of the better ones. And so, yeah, I'm sorry as much. I know Castle kind of had that like kind of uh, before the time, you know, kind of gangster rap, you know, sort of uh, (laughs) enmity with Hitchcock and tried to like um, taunt Hitchcock and everything. And 
but I really don't, I think it wasn't much of a competition, honestly. I mean, you know, you didn't see Hitchcock like entering back really at the taunts of Castle. So uh, it was a kind of like a one way uh, competition, but yeah, Hitchcock was just brilliant and Castle was fun and we need both of them. But if I had to choose the only one, I'd go with Alfred. William Castle is gangster rap. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus with Alfred, you get the television shows, not just the hey, movie. Hey, there you go. There you yeah. go. A lot of great television. A lot of great television. Yep. All right. Well, that was the classic five. How do you feel? I, you know, I feel like I've passed through the gauntlet. There you um, go. I was, I was worried that I was going to have to answer some kind of uh, Godzilla question, and you know, that's not really my bag. So, <laughs> so I, I made it through unscathed. I try to do a little bit of research, you know, and, and and I don't ever see you post about kaiju, so I, I purposely left those cards aside. Oh so, yeah, you know, I, I try to do a little bit of research, you know. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Well, your prize for playing and winning the class. I know there's. I said there's no winners, but your prize for winning winning the classic five you get to talk about the old dark house with me here on the show and boy what a movie i know we started talking about it earlier but this one is just so good and completely underrated there is an underrated film for you oh yeah totally not not enough people talk about it yeah well my understanding from watching some of the features on my dvd version was that this was for many years practically speaking a lost film yeah I guess it was, there were some prints around in maybe the 50s or early 60s, but because the movie was remade by Columbia, the original uh, 1932 version from Universal was put in limbo because Universal retained the rights to the original movie, but they didn't have exhibition rights to actually show it. And so we really only have our modern knowledge of this film, uh, thanks to a really dedicated friend of James Wales, who really went to bat for like asking people like three times to search uh, Universal's archives in New York. And apparently the first time it came at, you know, they came back and said we couldn't find it. And then he told them to go back and look a second time. They came back without any results. And he said, go ahead and look even more for it. And the third time they found it. And I guess the first reel was damaged and there had to be a restoration, but there was no money for a restoration and Universal wasn't interested in doing a restoration. So there was a corporate donor, I I think, that was involved in helping to fund the restoration. And so the fact that we have this film at all is really a dedication or rather an indication of the dedication of uh, one of Wales' friends to really see this through and uh, just a very fortunate stroke of luck because very easily we might have not had this film to talk about. Yeah, and that was Curtis Harrington that, that did that, who is a filmmaker in his own right. He, he did some films that you know I haven't talked about here on the show much, if at all. Night Tide with uh, Dennis Hopper, uh, which is another one of those really weird movies, Queen of Blood, and he worked with Corman a little bit with Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. So, I mean, he's a monster kid as well, I assume, uh, doing movies like that and being friends with James Whale, but he did so much more. And since he was the driving force behind re- introducing this film to the world i mean huge props to him i don't know anything about him outside of you know his directorial career but this is amazing that he was able to get universal to go and dig and find this stuff if it's only that easy to just tell somebody to do it three times and they go and find it i mean how many how many lost films are there that we'd love to be able to just say hey just look a little harder 
Just look a little bit harder. Just, just please, please just look one more time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and also the, the resilience it took, because how many of us would have heard no the first time and just yeah. kind of said, okay, well, I guess that didn't work out. But he really wanted to see it, get the audience that it deserved. Uh, it monster props to him, no pun intended, um, <laughs> you know, for uh, actually doing this and, and making this film available to us. We talked. You touched on it a little bit. You touched on a little bit about why it got pulled from distribution, and Columbia was working with Hammer Films to release their own version of it, directed by William Castle, in '62, I believe, is the year on that. And I asked you when we first started talking about this. You're not talking about talking about that one, right? You want to talk about the '32 one, and you said you hadn't watched it yet. The Hammer. One? Yeah, I had not watched the Hammer okay. version. I, the, I still have not watched the Hammer well, version. Okay. I mean. Yeah. I don't like to be overly negative here on the show, <laughs> so I'm probably not going to say much more about Hammer's take on the old Dark House, but it, it's not nearly as good. I'll just say that. Yeah. It's not nearly as good. I mean, Tom Poston is fun, I suppose, but other than that... <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's hard movie. to improve on Ernest Bessinger, you know, oh, um, man. and Boris Karloff. I mean, you, you know, you can't really catch lightning in a bottle twice. I mean, it, it's, you know, there's something about that, you know, the actors and the director and the sets and, you know, the dialogue and the source material all kind of coming together in this uh, really cool way. And for any movie to kind of gel together well, you know, a lot of things just have to happen to fall into place. And it's difficult to do that twice. You talked about the source material. You read the novel before recording this, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the novel was published in the UK as Benighted and published in 1927, I believe, over there. And then 1928 was published over in the United States as The Old Dark House. Uh, benighted basically means like overcome by darkness. And sometimes it can also be used as like in a condescending way to talk about folks who are, you know, like benighted by ignorance or whatever. Um, <laughs> written by a gentleman named J.B. Priestley, who went on to have a career, if I understand it, more as a mainstream writer and a more mainstream like literary critic even. But uh, this was his second novel. It was interesting to read the book and then rewatch the movie the novel, I think I can say, is, is a bit more brooding uh, than the movie. It's a little bit more focused on the tragedy of the post-World War I generation and the loss and the, you know, kind of the, the collision of that with the sort of uh, emotional and physical grotesquerie to be discovered there in the uh, femme household. So the tone is a bit different, and there is one substantial difference in the ending, which I will not spoil for those who want to go back and read the novel. But by and large, it's a you know, the film is a faithful adaptation of the novel. I will say one other thing. We were just talking about the efforts to rescue the film. I should also uh, give some credit to Oren Gray, who I believe is possibly a friend of Monster Kid Radio. Oh, yeah. Friend of Monster Kid Radio and the biggest fan of the movie Matongo, I know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, because <laughs> apparently Oren was one of the folks who helped shepherd the republication of the book Benighted. Probably, I think it's like maybe five or six years ago. He was able to do that through a publisher called Valencourt uh, Books that kind of focuses on rediscovering out of print horror books. And so the fact that um, we were able to, or the fact that I was able to go on Amazon and pull an ebook of the old dark house off so I could read it quickly 
to prepare for this. I wouldn't have been able to do that without Oren, you know, kind of paving the way there. So he helped to rescue the literary aspect of this. And I would encourage anyone who is really interested in digging deeper into this movie to check out the book. It's relatively short. And it's definitely worth reading just to get a different spin on the characters. Although, of course, I can, there's no way I could read about Morgan without seeing Karloff in that role or read about Horace without seeing uh, Ernest Thessinger in that role. Sure. Well, I'll make sure there are link, links in the show notes to uh, the Valancourt version of Benighted. You can get it as an ebook, a dead tree version, or even on Audible. I mean, you can get it a number of different ways. And I didn't know that Oren was all that involved in making that happen until you mentioned that you were reading it. And then I went and looked to see if it's something that I had time to read and saw his name on there. Oren's been on the show a few times. I'd like to have him back on down the line. It's just a matter of finding time and uh, a movie to talk about. But he's a great guy and even greater now in my book if he was partly responsible for making this happen because that's just great yeah and he wrote an introduction too um, yeah yeah very thought uh, thought provoking and helpful so yeah just uh can't say enough good things about Oren. he's a good guy he's a good guy Oren, i hope you're listening we like you okay uh the novel i've not read to be honest with you and mm-hmm. it is something that i'm going to put on my to read list i need it's one of those things that i keep meaning to read anyway uh because i like this movie so much and because i did see the hammer version you know i really do want to go back to the source material and eventually i will but like many of you out there listeners and i'm sure like nicole my to read list is huge yeah i, I don't have a to read list i have a to read pile like literally I, it's like a big pile about three feet long by uh three feet uh, high I, I totally get it now Earlier in this episode, Kenny did his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and he read an excerpt from the magazine where they talk about the introduction of Karloff in the film. And you were just mentioning, we can't think about Morgan without thinking about Karloff. I mean, the man was just magnificent. There is nothing that he's done that I have disliked. And this is another one of those roles, again, because the movie's kind of underrated, I don't think enough people really talk about he is a brooding mute kind of creature, so there are some Frankensteinisms here, but I still feel like he makes him unique enough to make him fascinating to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, unlike Frankenstein, you know, Morgan, apparently he's a binge drinker, yeah, uh, and that's part of what sets him off. And it, I mean, his role in the family is kind of interesting because we find out later that there's a reason for him being there, even though he's a menacing presence. I think Jack Pierce did the makeup for this, and he did it in a way that, is disturbing. You know, there's something kind of off with Morgan's eyes. Uh, that beard is kind of, you know, there's something unkempt and kind of primal about Morgan that goes through. And yet uh, also that he has a relationship with one member of the femme household that is intriguing just because there's one member of the household that he does have some affection for. And uh, he's also very menacing. And of course, Karloff, by all accounts, was just a real gentle man, not just a gentleman in the sense of uh, status in society, but a gentle man. He was a well-read man. He was a man who was very kind to his co-stars and uh, the polar opposite of many of the the roles he played. And his role here is uh, quite menacing, quite primal, you know, bizarre, unhinged. Yeah, it's um, a testament to his, his ability as an actor, kind of like what that little statement at the beginning of the film says, is that it's a testimony to his versatility that, you know, they, they have to like put a little disclaimer to say, yes, this is the same actor who played Frankenstein, because otherwise people might not believe it. I mean, I, I can think of no higher compliment to an actor 
than to have to point out to the audience that this is the same actor because otherwise they wouldn't know. That opening title card that talks about this is the same Karloff that you saw as Frankenstein, how fascinating that is because that's not something that was done on the regular. That Universal put that up there just speaks to what the studio must have thought of Karloff and his drawing power and his ability. And obviously it was a promotional tool as well, but I can't think of any other actor that got that kind of treatment in the film itself. That exactly. Way. Yeah. So yeah very fascinating. Good fascinating. Karloff is fantastic in this. And then we talked a little bit about how there's some other people from James Whale's career or filmography in here. We got Gloria Stewart's in here. Uh, she was in the invisible man and uh, you know, she does a great job. She's fun to watch. I mean, there, there's nobody in this film that I disliked. I oh, had totally. such a good time with the characters in this and just the way the movie starts, you know, it's foreboding, you know, something bad's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's a dark and stormy night, right? And yeah, it totally. literally is a stormy night. There is water pouring everywhere. I felt so bad for the actors and actress in that opening scene in the car. Yeah, they're covered up and all that, but there's so much water all over the place. And they do make a point of showing us, yes, ice cold rainwater is running down the guy's uh, neck as he's trying to drive yep. and navigate through this mountain pass that they probably had no business being on anyway. They do talk about how they got lost and, and they just don't know where they're going to go. And it's, <laughs> it's uncomfortable, but still made amusing because Roger's in the back seat just having having a good time singing of all things singing in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that part of the movie, I was just taken aback by how good it looked. I mean, you know, yeah. it's still convincing even to this day, you know, you're not thinking of yourself, you know, this is like uh, the same era where special effects were maybe not all that well done in films. And that rainstorm had to take some time to do. And the landslide, my understanding is that the landslide it with miniatures, but when I was watching it, I wasn't aware that it was done with miniatures. I was thinking, you know, my goodness, they must have had a way to, you know, bring down the land, you know, kind of, th- I mean, how, you know, I was trying to figure out how they did it. And, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert in special effects, but, you know, maybe if I was, I would have seen it. But uh, if a general moviegoer is still asking themselves nearly 100 years after the movie was made, how did they do that? That's a pretty good testimony to the realism of the film, you know, that that it really does capture you in a sense of the danger outside. And I think it's important for the film to establish the danger outside because you have to make some plausible reason for why they would venture inside into the demented realm of the femmes. Well, first of all, I had no idea it was a miniature. That's amazing. I had no clue. I heard that in the film commentary. Yeah, I need to go back and watch the commentary track still. Uh, again, like my books, I have so many movies on my to-watch pile, and to go back and re-watch some of them, uh, <laughs> right. I don't know if I'll get through them all. Right, someday, but you, someday. Well, you put together this podcast, so you hey, know, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Oh, you I'm do. not. I'm yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. this, this is the commentary track, is what we're doing right now. <laughs> There you go. It should be the commentary track. Uh, someday there will be some Monster Kid Radio commentary stuff, but that's a whole different conversation for another time. Uh, I had no idea it was a miniature, and you're right. They do have to establish why these characters show up at this old dark house and why they don't leave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's done in the best way possible. Yeah, it's a little contrived, maybe, but, you know, so what? 
you know, we're in it now at this point. Right. And the characters are so fun. I, I really enjoyed the back and forth, the witty dialogue, the way the dialogue is being kind of spit back and forth between Raymond Massey and Gloria Stewart in the front of the car and then Melvin Douglas in the back. <laughs> it's, it's a fun scene, even though you can tell at least two of the characters are miserable. A lot of the dialogue was taken directly from the novel. That's one of the things I should I, I can share is, you know, that there's a lot of the dialogue throughout the film is taken from the novel. Not completely. Uh, there are some flourishes where uh, the script goes into a different direction, but a lot of that opening dialogue is straight from the novel, and I think it works, and I think the actors work. I mean, I think that these performances are really solid, and like you said, there is that tension between the married couple and then their friend, you know, in the back, kind of doing his devil-may-care sort of attitude. It sets up an interesting dynamic, because already you have, uh, you know, two characters in conflict, and then you have, like, this third wheel kind of character who's not completely a third wheel but he is kind of an outsider to their relationship to some degree and it sets up an interesting dynamic from the start because you have tension so it's the middle of the night there's landslides there's a house up ahead let's knock on the door and see if they'll give him shelter and that's when we see Karloff for the first time and like i said kenny talked about it earlier when i first saw Karloff in this i mean he's creepy looking man <laughs> You know? Yeah, and, and creepy sounding. Yeah, the first time I saw this, I did not know that that character was going to be speechless, dumb, as they say. Yeah. I had no clue. So to have him just kind of grunt a little bit the way that he does, kind of this weird grunt moan thing, it's, it's eerie and it's unnerving. And there's a joke played on that where Melvin Douglas utters the line, not even Welsh should sound like that. You know? <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so you have like this typical kind of James Whale maneuver where we have this, you know, kind of creepy moment immediately with like this sarcasm put on it like icing on a cake. And uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> the little jokes, the little digs here and there, the little zingers, they're subtle. They happen without a lot of fanfare. Right. So they happen and then it might take you a second to catch up to them. There's another comment later that was made and I'm assuming this is intentional uh, and we'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it. I, I remind me to come back to something about getting wet out in the rain. Oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah, 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 yeah. There was a possible innuendo there that I, oh, I thought just could a little be. Bit. Yeah. Knowing what I know of James Whale, I would not be surprised if that was intentional. Right. And slid right under the radar. Anyway, you know, we don't just meet Karloff. We also meet Ernest Thessinger, who is somebody that I don't know enough about. I really wish I knew more about him. Everything that I've seen him in, which is very little, to be honest, Mm -hmm. it's just fantastic. Are you familiar with him at all? Just Googled around a little bit because I'm fascinated by him. And apparently, you know, I mean, there were some things that, that surprised me. I mean, this is a guy who was a combat veteran of world war one um yeah was wounded and uh he took up needlepoint as like a way to exercise his fingers and he actually was involved in trying to like encourage soldiers to do needlepoint as a kind of like digital kind of 
with digital in the sense of the digits in terms of fingers, kind of exercising the fingers as rehabilitation, I guess, for maybe people who were wounded in the hand or something, or just to pass the time. And of course, the British authorities at the time said that's too effeminate <laughs> for our soldiers to be doing. But eventually he got it kind of gone through and he did this and he wrote a book, Adventures in Cross Stitch or something. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. And apparently he was married. And uh, I don't know much about the lucky woman, <laughs> but... The way he's depicted in the film Gods and Monsters is, you know, kind of more or less openly gay. Of course, at the same time in in Great Britain at that time, I mean, it was criminal offense to be openly gay, essentially, or certainly to, to be sexually active and be openly gay. So, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I mean, really interesting I, I love him in this. I love him in Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, he adds a, a certain level of uh, not just cleverness, but humor and sarcasm to the whole thing. There's that scene early on when they first go into the house where he talks about his sister has just uh, arranged these flowers. And then he immediately tosses them into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> There's this kind of like total disregard for social niceties in terms of what he says, at least, and, and in some of his actions. Yeah, at the same time, there are points in this film where he is uh, quite terrified. And in some ways, he's the the link in the family to our travelers who stop for the night, right? He's mm-hmm. like the envoy because everyone else is just kind of too demented to actually make contact with. So I, I like to think of Ernest Thessinger in this movie as being like the ambassador of the femme family to our travelers. To the degree that anyone is hospitable in the family, it's him. Yeah, I mean, he's the one that seems the most willing to open the doors to him. Uh, the sister, no beds, no beds. You know, they don't right. want, she don't want them there at all. But he seems to be the one to kind of welcome everybody in. And if you're being welcomed in by Ernest Sessinger, I, I, I might take my chances in the rain. But that's because I've seen Pride of Frankenstein. Uh, right. I, I would love to hang out with Ernest Thessinger. Oh, I would do, yeah, I would yeah. do cross-stitch with Ernest Thessinger. And I would, you know, I play cards with him. I just think he would be a fun guy just to spend time with, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and he does pour gin for some of the for the people, and of course, as he's pouring the gin, all I'm hearing is it's my only weakness. You know, I'm just <laughs> right, right, totally, totally. <laughs> Between that and the potatoes, uh, there's right, a lot of potato. <laughs> of potato right? <laughs> and it's so delightfully, and I think you nailed it. Weird, and the whole family is is this, and the weirdness has some humorous aspects, and the weirdness has some real dangerous aspects, and mm-hmm. reality kind of melts a little bit inside the femme household. You know, there's of the darkness. The family generates their own electricity, but the electricity is shaky because they're not really great electricians. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's not really in their bailiwick, and of course, the sister refuses to have any electricity in her room by some kind of, like, old-fashioned kind of conviction so there's lots of candles around and so the shadows are merging with people and the people are merging with shadows and you know the appearance of many of the characters is disturbing or odd in the book horace is presented as kind of a thin kind of gaunt kind of person and and i think that's where thessinger really does work because his appearance his his uh kind of thin face and the the odd angles of it kind of work for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the weirdness is it's both weird in the sense of kind of um, being amusing and also weird in terms of being treacherous and all, you know, mm-hmm. getting caught up in the weird. 
And that's what I love. I, I like, like how it kind of captures all of that. So the sister is played by Eva Moore. And, and I want to talk about her, but first I, I feel like this is a character that I'm a little surprised wasn't played by Una O'Connor. <laughs> Just because I know James liked her, James Whale was liked using her and, and appreciated her and enjoyed her work, I'm kind of surprised. I could see her in that role. I think what the actress who played the sister, I think she brought a gruffness to it. She did. Yeah, that Uno O'Connor wouldn't have had. I think Uno would have been almost too much comic relief for it. And so you need, you know, like Messenger brings some comic relief. And if you have the the sister, Rebecca Femme, you have her being kind of really more grim and she's funny in a way. She's not really making sarcastic jokes. She's just kind of funny because of how bizarre she is and how old fashioned she is and, and that kind of thing. But she's also more menacing. I mean, especially when we have Gloria Stewart's character, uh, Margaret, when she is interacting with uh, Rebecca Femme, there's this real sense of Rebecca almost embodying like this kind of crone, this kind of like this other spectrum. You you have uh, Gloria Stewart's character, Margaret uh, Waverton, who is beautiful and young. And then you have this kind of trollish sort of woman. There is like this, you know, the other end of the age spectrum and saying, one day you're going to be like me. Looking at the dress in the bedroom when Margaret has to change out of her wet clothes and the sister in the femme family doesn't give Margaret any privacy and is just kind of there watching it all and comes up to her and holds on to the dress and says, this is fine stuff, and then touches Margaret on the sternum and says, and this is finer stuff too, and it, it will rot in the same way the dress will rot. There's something really dangerous or kind of treacherous and dark about that. And I don't think Una O'Connor would have been able to carry the gravity of the darkness for that aspect of the role. I'm not saying I don't like Eva Moore's performance at all. I think she's great. I'm just wondering what it would have been like with O'Connor there, because it would have been a different type of character. I think Eva Moore does have that kind of, (laughs) kind of, I I just can't imagine Una doing that without shrieking, you know? Right. Well, I'm all for Una O'Connor. I I would, you know, I would love to see a a detective show with Una O'Connor and Maria Uspenskaya uh, teaming together to solve crimes. Somebody (laughs) make that happen. Um, (laughs) Oh, I'm on board. I'm all in. Somebody write that. Can you imagine them? Because Maria Uspenskaya would be like completely, you know, like very calm and collected and everything. And then you have Uno O'Connor, you know, like shouting and running around, you know, and maybe Maria Uspenskaya could slap her a few times and get her straightened out. I mean, you know, it has all kinds of dramatic potential. So, yeah, um, I love Uno. I know a lot of people are Una haters. I'm certainly not an Una hater at all. I no. I appreciate it. I typically I love her in in her performances. I, I love her in The Invisible Man. I love her in Bride of Frankenstein. I, I've warmed to her over the years. I used to just kind of roll my eyes whenever I saw her in these movies, but now I mean I love her. I mean she's just as essential to those films as it. But that's a whole different movie again. We're kind of getting. <laughs> This right. is what happens. This is what happens when monster kids start talking about these movies we love so much. We right. go from here to here to here to here. And maybe it's my fault because I primed the pump with the classic five. But, you know, <laughs> it, it just happens. Uh, well, it's a fun conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. And even more is great. And, and you mentioned the scene where she's kind of heckling her. That scene, the way the mirrors are used oh, and the gosh, reflections. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the first thing because that, that is not at all mentioned in the novel. Uh, so that is straight James Whale. 
and it is just remarkable. So Margaret and uh, Rebecca are in Rebecca's room, and Margaret is trying to change her clothes, and uh, Rebecca isn't really leaving her alone or giving her any privacy, and you see this distorted image, a series of distorted images in uh, the mirror, and I guess the implication is that maybe through age or something, the mirror has become warped, mm-hmm. and so as a result, it's like this funhouse mirror kind of image. At one point, her forehead seems exaggerated. Another point, I think her nose or her chin seems exaggerated, and then later in that scene, something similar happens with Margaret, where she's looking in the mirror and she sees her face distorted and everything. And it's almost a sense of like, at least for me, it's kind of a sense that, uh, you know, the, the weirdness of the femme household, you know, could be contagious. Not only does she look like that, but if I stay around here too long, I might look like that too, which is kind of undergirded by the comments of this is fine stuff, that's finer stuff, but, you know, eventually one day it'll rot. That's what I love about it. It's like the the real and the unreal are kind of doing its waltz. And reality is kind of unstable and darkness and shadows have free reign in this place. And so while the film doesn't have any overt supernatural elements, it does capture a sense of unreality, both in the demented natures of the characters and in the kind of unstable visual images and the unstable setting and and everything that I think really, really works well. And as if things can't get weird enough, Charles Lawton turns up. Right. Charles Lawton in his first American film role is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, As Sir William Porterhouse. And of course he's named Porterhouse. Right. Uh, (laughs) And he turns up with his friend, I guess. Yeah, his uh, traveling companion, his... I don't know, Paramore. Yeah. Gladys played by Lillian Bond. Charles Lawton and Ernest Thessinger going back and forth. Those two personalities in this film. I could have watched 90 minutes of that. Oh, yeah. Lawton is playing. Well, what they're both doing is playing a bit larger than life. You know, both a bit uh, exaggerated, you know, and, and Lawton is kind of at least initially a bit bombastic, a bit, you know, kind of like. He, he walks into there and he's used to kind of running things. So he's not intimidated at all by the Femme family, at least early on. Uh, and he, you know, walks in there and he's kind of making jokes and everything. Him and, and Ernest Sessinger are, are great on the screen together. Definitely uh, fun to watch those two go back and forth. And then the rest of the movie has, I guess, what you would call, you know, these tropes, these stereotypes of old Dark House movies. But this is the movie that kind of set those tropes and set those stereotypes in place. So... They're, they're fresh and it's original and it doesn't feel derivative at all. No, especially, I mean, it's weirder than any old Dark House movie that I think I can remember. Yeah, I yeah. mean, short of, like, some of the things that may have been influenced by it, it crackles with originality in the sense of the atmosphere and the tone that it sets, I think, is utterly unique. I mean, how this kind of, like, the balancing act between humor and being overwhelmed by oddity is able to capture that in a way that no other film I know of has been able to do. And you talked about this film having familial, I guess, horror. Um, There's some weird family stuff happening. There's somebody in the family who likes to set things on fire, which is a nice uh, opposite to why everybody's in the house to begin with. You know, you've yeah, got all the rain outside. Yeah, yeah. You know, these conflicting forces here coming together. So he's locked up in his room so he doesn't set the house on a fire. The family patriarch, who's actually played by a woman, is right. also here in the home and, and bedridden and 
telling a few of these newcomers about what's really going on in the house and why Saul's there. Saul is the pyromaniac and the relationship between Saul and Morgan is revealed. And there's a lot of running around this house and you'd feel like with as many characters as there are here, you might get a little lost. Things might get a little muddled, but I never felt that way at all. I didn't either. I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's because they're divided into kind of two camps. So you have like the family and then you have the travelers and that helps a little bit. But I think also the characters are distinguished enough from each other that they're easy to remember. Penderil, played by Melvin Douglas, is a certain type of character. And he, he doesn't really share many other characteristics with other characters, right? So he's not just like a clone of Charles Lawton's character or Raymond Massey's character. So they're distinguished enough that we're able to appreciate the differences. There's no one here is a carbon copy. Everyone has some depth to them. And I think that it goes back to the source material, but also to James Whale's direction, because it would have been very easy. I can think of like, especially in a modern studio, someone saying, well, there's too many characters. Let's combine these two characters into one character or something like that. I mean, I can imagine all kinds of studio meddling that could have happened to make this simpler and less strange. It's kind of cool that they kept the, the, the all the characters and didn't make too many changes in uh, the adaptation. That book is now has slowly making its way closer and closer to the top of my to-read list, just kind of hearing you talk about it. There's one big surprise at the end that I had to like reread to make sure that I, I caught it correctly because it is a significant change. But yeah, overall, I mean, so much of this is coming from the source material. Of course, the source material doesn't have the visuals attached to it, nor the actors attached to it. You know, someone has to make that vision uh, real in three dimensions. And I think James Whale was the perfect person for that. Now, he really was somebody who deserved a much longer career as a director. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. he really, he was good. He was really, and his fingerprints are all over this. I, mm-hmm. I, and I've talked about this here on the show before. I love Frankenstein. Frankenstein is very much a studio picture. I feel like, whereas Bride of Frankenstein, you feel a lot more of Whale's personality. It feels very much like Whale was allowed to play and do whatever he wanted with Bride of Frankenstein. And some of that exists here as well in the old dark house, especially the way he's weaving the stories around this incredible set piece. This house is gorgeous. It is. To be able to pull off, you know, technically, I think, just to have the lighting in the house, to make it filmable where there are, it's not just a simple contrast but there's lots of shades of gray that work with the black and white to pull off the lighting of a poorly Mm -hmm. lit house uh and make it convincing is i think a technical accomplishment it's amazing and you don't see that today i mean everything's cg or or whatever and i feel like there's just something magical and majestic about some of these older films because you know those locations were real they were real sets they were built and existed and could hold up to actual foot traffic you know just just something magical about it yeah i I mean well and it kind of helps make the story feel larger than life when you have larger than life setting that kind and a setting is so important for this film because Really, all the action takes place essentially in one location. I mean, the name of the film is The Old Dark House. It says the house itself is the menace. So it has to be convincing as a menace and uh, as a place, but it's still as a place that you want to spend time in as a viewer. And I think it succeeds. 
I uh, mentioned earlier, there's kind of a double entendre. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, made earlier. And that's when Gladys and uh, Penderel are going out to the car, which has been parked in the garage or the stable outside. And they have a moment together. Uh, when they come back in and Gladys tells Porterhouse, <laughs> uh, why are you? I can't remember the exact exchange, but it wasn't. <laughs> Do you remember the exact line of dialogue out is. I don't, I don't remember the exact line of dialogue, but it had something to do with getting wet. Yeah, and it, <laughs> I got run through most of it. That's not all. It got wet. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little shocked at how quick they fell in love, but you know what? It's a movie. You got. You got to do something. I don't know. Yeah, I think, and it's better set up in the book. It's still a little Is bit it? of a stretch, I think, in the book, but in the book, you find out more about Pendrel's backstory and you know, why he would find somebody like Gladys so appealing and, you know, kind of like all the trials and tribulations and kind of, he's at a, at a um, departure point in his life where he, uh, you know, could kind of go in a couple different directions. So I think in the book, it's set up sort of as that he is, it's either continuing to kind of flounder around or, you know, it's like this could be a direction for his life, you know, a positive direction instead of just kind of wandering and feeling sorry for himself. And, or, or, you know, I mean, I, I think in the book, you can make the case that he even has possibly some post-traumatic stress disorder from uh, World War One. So it's like this could be the kind of thing that would set his life away from kind of just being a kind of uh, unrooted and that sort of thing to actually kind of settling down and building something with his life. I think it's interesting that that Whale adapted this book because, of course, Whale had a uh, history in World War One, and so did Ernest Thessinger. So you have the story having something to do with the aftermath of World War One. Of course, Whale also put some more whimsical aspect on it too. So yeah, I agree that in the film it it is a bit of a rush and it a bit does sort of um, not necessarily seem credible. And also the other thing is when, um, you know, Sir William Porterhouse is so forgiving of the fact that his, you know, paramour or however we want to put it, has fallen in love with uh, Penderel. You know, he's just very like, OK, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you want to say, dude, this this guy just stole your girl, you know, like out in the, out in the barn. And he's just kind of pretty philosophical about it. So, yeah, that's that's another thing that was a little bit hard to swallow but you're so wrapped up into the movie that you don't really question it too much yeah at this point everything in the movie is just a little off anyway off kilter anyway so just one more thing right no big deal just accept it move on overall i love the film oh i did too i don't know if we want to get too far and i've had people comment that they don't mind spoilers but i don't want to get too far into ultimately what happens at the end or anything like that because i feel like this is one that hasn't been watched by very many people uh, or as, at least as many people as, say, like Frankenstein or Dracula and the right. others. But this is right up there. When I think 30s horror, this is there. And it's got all the hallmarks of a big universal production as well. It's a universal film for people who didn't know. And I was a little surprised the first time I saw this that it was a universal production. I had no idea. Of the vintage of universal films where they had the little airplane going around the globe at the beginning. And it's like, that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think part of it is it uh, apparently, from what I understand, the film did very poorly in the United States when it was uh, first 
uh, released. And so it never kind of got the same energy behind it in the public imagination that other like Frankenstein and Dracula and this sort of thing got. And I think also, to some degree, it's a bit of a niche film just because it doesn't have one big bad. I mean, you could say that Morgan's the big bad, but then it's revealed that there's another big bad involved. You know, Dracula, one villain. Frankenstein, well, you could debate which one is the villain. You could say Dr. Frankenstein is the villain and that the creature is a victim. And here we don't have one single villain. You know, we have basically hereditary madness is the villain in almost the same kind of way as Spider Baby, where it's hereditary madness. And Spider Baby is kind of a fringe film. It's not, you know, it doesn't capture a a popular audience. And I think this is kind of the same kind of thing where it was just, I think, a bit weirder. Bride of Frankenstein had the Frankenstein monster there as like a drawing appeal for people and like other people could get like the weirdness of it and really enjoy it and that kind of thing and maybe some of the innuendo and whatnot but here there wasn't the drawing power uh, one of the big five monsters you know it reminds me a lot of the adams family it reminds me a lot of Mm -hmm. rocky horror picture show you know these kinds of uh, things that are a really more niche appeal you know not necessarily a mass market appeal but are really geared towards weird folks like myself. And that's why I really enjoy it. <laughs> it's definitely a movie for monster kids. Yes. Definitely is. It's, it's something that's, even though it's weird and odd and there's some truly frightening moments here and unsettling moments, it's still a comfort to watch. Well, you have Karloff, you know, yeah. I think for folks who haven't seen it, it's going to be a real treat and I just can't say enough good things about it. Agreed. It's definitely a solid film. Highly recommended. It's available on Blu-ray right now. And Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The blue, it just looks gorgeous as well. And maybe this is, again, we go all the way back to Curtis Harrington's efforts to get this re-released or, or put back into the public. Uh, it's, it's been treated very well you know, in, in the restoration of the film. So highly recommend people see this. It looks gorgeous. The cinematography is amazing. I had no idea there were miniature shots in it. So that speaks to the quality of the miniature shots, the acting top notch. I don't remember there being much music in this. Do you? I don't either. I think maybe a little bit. Yeah. You know, but I, I didn't really, I can't really remember that either. I think there, well, there is at the, be- at the very beginning, like, well, I don't sure. Yeah. Up. But and then maybe as they're like entering the house, but I don't remember a whole lot of music. Yeah, as far as like an original score or whatever, this is still the 30s. There wasn't a lot of original music in Dracula or Frankenstein either, and that, that's fine. I just I don't remember that, and that's something that I normally pay attention to. You know, this is one of yeah. those things that I'm always aware of, and I didn't even notice that there wasn't any in this. Wow. So again, that speaks to the quality of the film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, outside of singing in the rain, of course. Yeah. <laughs> 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 which I had no idea the first time I saw this. I had no idea that that song existed before the film. So, huh. yeah, I I had no idea at that point. But then I was not really into classic films at the time, either the first time I saw this. So, cool. this is something that people need to see. And when you're done watching it, go read some of Nicole's books. See, see how I did that? Nice little segue there. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so what's the most recent... Uh, work of yours out there right now oh the most recent is a novella called the half freaks and uh, speaking of odd very odd little novella also uh my novel a sick gray laugh those are a couple of new ones check the stuff out especially if you like stuff that's kind of weird off kilter strange bizarre unusual 
uh, twisted, etc. <laughs> and but I'm mostly here just as a Monster Kid to kind of say I love, 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 love Monster Kid Radio, and I love, 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 love the Old Dark House. Uh, and I uh, look forward to that uh, detective show with Maria Uspanskaya and uh, and, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, or Connor solving crimes. <laughs> The online home of Nicole Cushing is called Litgressive. You can find it at NicoleCushing.wordpress.com, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. If you go to her website, you'll find everything you need to know about her and what she's up to. Her biography's there, her contact information's there, links to her Patreon, her critique services, her YouTube channel, everything that she's got going on, you're going to find here. Her writing classes look fascinating. So go check out our website, support those who support Monster Kid Radio. Nicole, it was a blast chatting with you. Once again, thank you so much for being so flexible and understanding with me when I forgot temporarily how to read a calendar for crying out loud. And listeners, I hope you couldn't tell, but we actually even had some tech difficulties in this recording. I had to reboot everything in mid-conversation. Hopefully it didn't sound like it, though. And I take full responsibility for anything that you might have noticed. Nicole, you're awesome. Thanks so much. There's never been a pattern to these Pacific vanishings. They seem to happen at random. Communication stopped. The crew's too busy to handle it to, to report. Handle what? Something that can catch up with the plane and snatch the people out of it. The Navy versus the Night Monsters. Starring Mamie Van Doren, who triggered earthly emotions in the midst of unearthly events. <laughs> Anthony Isley, fighting fiendish, crawling things. From Antarctica, frozen for a million years, to a small naval outpost in the Pacific comes a cargo of deviltry, devastation, death. Attacking bodies, destroying minds. Killing terror in a desperate, endless fight against a nameless horror. Those things are multiplying. There's no telling how fast. I wouldn't be surprised. We've got up to be hundreds, maybe even thousands. The whole island will be covered with them. somewhat older and more drawn than I have in my recent pictures. It's because of the harrowing experiences I've been having here in The Maze. The Maze is the first picture in three dimension that delves into the weird and terrifying world of the supernatural. If you're familiar with the exciting effects that can be achieved with 3D, you can imagine what happens when something from the great beyond reaches right out of the screen to clutch at you. Oh, and one more thing. After you've seen the maze, please don't reveal to your friends the secret of its story or its startling climax. Because, you see, we think the maze will amaze you.
fearful secret was hidden from the world for 200 years. Why was every door in Craven Castle locked at night? I went to your room and I saw something. Something horrible. It was the most horrible thing I've ever seen. It was your imagination. It was something alive. I saw it move. The terrifying story that startled the world comes to the screen in three dimensions. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening, for tagging along, retweeting tweets, sharing posts on Facebook, and just spreading the word. If you are an iTunes user, please consider leaving us an honest review in the iTunes store. And if there's a way to leave reviews in other podcast directories, well, please consider leaving honest reviews there as well if you happen to use a non-iTunes podcast directory and actually we did have a listener who said that the last episode of monster kid radio did not appear in itunes but when i asked on facebook if this was something that other people were struggling with everybody said they had no issues so i'm not sure what's going on there but it was recommended that perhaps uninstalling and reinstalling itunes would help either way you should be able to find it of course if you can't find the show well one you're not listening to this episode because you weren't able to download it but if you have problems in the future you can always find it at monsterkidradio.net there are links to everything that we talked about here on the show over there as well as well as buttons that go through our amazon affiliate link if you want to buy anything from Nicole or the movie we talked about or even the benighted novel, basically anything that we talk about here on the show, you can buy through Amazon. And by doing so, we get a little bit of kickback because we're an Amazon affiliate. And every little bit helps to keep the lights on around here, especially these days. What's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio? You know, I've got a couple of things in the works. I'm not really sure. And I hate to leave you guys and gals hanging, but you're just going to have to pay attention to monsterkidradio.net for when I do announce what's coming up next week. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Toro Star. That belongs to Elvino and the Dwells. It's from their self-titled album, Elvino and the Dwells, and you can find them at elvinoandthedwells.bandcamp.com to pick up their digital album. Seven dollars Six really cool tracks, including Toral Star, which you're going to hear in a second because that's when they gave us permission to play here on the show. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.